Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age. Hi, and I'm Stephen G. Fullwood, and I am the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project, and I'm here in Harlem, and it's about 83 degrees, I think. Hey, I'm <laughs> Seth Rodney. Wow, I just almost forgot my own name. I <laughs> uh, am... <laughs> an editor at the Hyperallergic blog, and the recent author of The Personalization of the Museum Visit, which uh, came out from Routledge on May 31st of this year. Yep, that's it. Yeah, well, you, you know, I, I threw I threw everyone off and forgot to say that I'm speaking to you from Southern California. Yeah, you were clipped. You're uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, that that was my that was my mistake, and oh, Seth yeah. was uh, trying yeah. to help me catch my my error. No, and actually, is, I was telling you to turn your volume up. But yeah, okay, that's uh, that's fine too. I, I'm, I'm in the Bronx, y'all. Um, and uh, this is to remind everyone that we like to practice a form of what we call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. Um, we are uh, taking a, a, uh, a slight detour in interruption, as death often is, uh, from our mm -hmm. uh, typical uh, discussion on climate change. This time we're, we're on the topic of climate change. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about Toni Morrison uh, today, who just passed away. And, you know, anything that you hear in the media, um, whether it be this podcast, television, whether it be the news, the quote unquote news, um, obviously movies uh, and the rest, novels, um, are crafted fictions, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is a pretty mm -hmm. sparsely crafted fiction. Um, but of course, and we try to be as natural as possible, but of course the conversation you're hearing, is it not exactly the same as the conversation Seth and Steve and I might have if we were meeting at a diner in New York, for mm -hmm. example, or, uh, meeting for drinks, uh, the first night that, that human, uh, immediacy and intimacy, uh, cannot ever be fully captured, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it can be more truthfully rendered in one of those oddities of human invention uh, with genius and art. And um, that's something that Toni Morrison uh, obviously accomplished with her life. Um, and I am going to take a back seat in this podcast uh, because I don't think – so uh, I am a fan. Uh, fan is probably too strong. I respect and mm -hmm. uh, have been touched by things that Toni Morrison has written, but I know for a fact um, she was not as meaningful to me as she was to Seth. And I, uh, I don't know Stephen as well, but uh, mm -hmm. I – I've gotten the impression that Tony Morrison was a pretty meaningful figure for him. So uh, I'm going to do a lot of listening. I mean, I have my I have my own things to contribute, but mm -hmm. um, Stephen and Seth, I just kind of like you guys to talk about Tony Morrison. And you know, we had talked about maybe like bringing up some of the passages that she. I don't want to constrain the conversation. Basically, I want basically to just allow us to talk about someone that obviously meant a great deal to uh, a great many people. Mm -hmm. Seth, do you want to begin, or should I? Or <laughs> I, I can, I can, or you can. I, I think I would defer to you, Stephen, honestly, because I think you know more about Toni Morrison. In fact, in the lead up to our conversation, you had mentioned that you'd met her, and I mm. hadn't. I have not come close. Had not come close to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my only relationship with her was through her writing. So I would love to hear that story. 
Wow, that story, that story. Can can I just push that over to the side because I like sure, sure, of, sure, 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 yeah, sure, sure. If um, I felt like if I were called upon, I wanted to sort of just um start with um a um a few passages, very short passages from her Nobel lecture in 1993, mm. which for me encapsulates a great deal of why I find her amazing, her powers of perception and creativity really profoundly uh, moving. And so um, I'd just like to read a couple things for you guys right quick and then kind of move on to something else. So um, this is, again, from the Nobel Lecture in Literature in 1993, my signed copy <laughs> from Toni Morrison um, in 1993. Um, Members of the Swedish Academy, ladies and gentlemen, narrative has never been merely entertainment for me. It is, I believe, one of the principal ways in which we absorb knowledge. I hope you will understand then why I begin these remarks with the opening phrase of what must be the oldest sentence in the world and the earliest one we remember from childhood, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind but wise. Or was it an old man? A guru, perhaps, or griot, soothing restless children. I've heard this story, or one exactly like it, in the lore of several cultures. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind, wise. In the version I know, the woman is the daughter of enslaved black people, American, and lives alone in a small house outside of town. Her reputation for wisdom is without peer and without question. Among her people, she is both the law and its transgression. The honor she is paid and the awe in which she is held reach beyond her neighborhood to places far away, to the city where the intelligence of rural prophets is a source of much amusement. Hmm. One day, the woman is visited by young people who seem to be bent on disproving her clairvoyance and showing her up for the fraud they believe she is. Their plan is simple. They enter her house and ask, one, ask the one question to which her rights solely on her difference from them a difference they regard as a profound disability, or blindness. They stand before her, and one of them says, Old woman, in my hand I hold a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. She does not answer, and the question is repeated. Is the bird I am holding living or dead? Still she does not answer. She is blind and cannot see her visitors, let alone what is in their hands. She does not know their color, gender, or homeland. She only knows their name. Oh, excuse me. She only knows their motive. The old woman's silence is so long, the young people have trouble holding their laughter. Finally, she speaks, and her voice is soft but stern. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive, but what I do know it is that it is in your hands. Mm. It is in your hands. Mm. Her answer can be taken to mean, if it is dead, you have either found it that way or you have killed it. If it is alive, you can still kill it. Whether, whether it is to stay alive is your decision. Whether the, whatever the case, it is your responsibility. For parading their power and her helplessness, the young visitors are reprimanded, told that they are responsible not only for the act of mockery, but also for the small bundle of life sacrificed to achieve, achieve its aims. Mm. The blind woman shifts, away, shifts attention away from the assertions of power to the instrument through which that power is exercised. 
Speculation on what, other than its own frail body, that bird in the hand might signify has always been attractive to me. But especially so now, thinking as I have been about the work I do that has brought me to this company. So I choose to read The Bird as Language and The Woman as a Practice Writer. It's pretty mm. awesome. It's mm-hmm. not even finished, but it's completely awesome because Morrison allows you to enter this particular Once Upon a Time story from both the blind woman and from the children's perspectives, separately and together. And so I recommend it. It's, um, it's available online as text, but also as oral. And one of Morrison's gifts as a storyteller is also her voice and how she reads. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I just wanted to begin there because I think what Morrison has done for me is to enter a particular kind of story. We talk a lot about, initially on this um, podcast, we've talked a lot about race and gender and other things. And what Morrison Mm -hmm. does for me and has and continues to do for me is to go into a story with your biases and then you're caught there, you know, (laughs) you're in the brambles and you have to kind of dislodge yourself because then people show up. Mm -hmm. And you have to manage vulnerability. You have to manage um, being wrong. <laughs> um, and I like that about her work a lot. Yeah. Mm. There's a line in that that you read, Stephen, which was, she is both, I think, the law and the and transgression. It's, and it's transgression, yes. And it's transgression. Right. So... I suppose in the back of my mind, I was trying to find a way to weave in the profound memory that I have of reading her work. Okay. Again, I've never met her. So my go-to response to this moment of collective recollection of what she means mm-hmm. and meant and has meant to... Us, her readers, her listeners, um, <clears throat> is to go to that moment when I read Beloved for the first mm-hmm. time. And I remember struggling with it. I think I was probably in my early 20s. I may not have been an undergrad yet, but may, may have been making my way back to it. Mm-hmm. But I remember talking with people about Beloved and saying to them, I'm struggling with this book. And I remember some people saying to me, yeah, I gave up on it. Like, <laughs> I tried, I tried, didn't work for me. And yeah. I remember another friend said, I tried, and it wasn't until the second or third try that I was able to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the preface. The okay. meat of the story for me is getting past the moment of trying and getting into the story and then realizing years after the fact of reading it, some of the things that I had read that I hadn't fully understood. And I don't know whether these things came to me in conversation or maybe it was just late at night looking up at the ceiling and thinking and then realizing, oh, I hadn't gotten that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The line about the woman being the law and the transgression, that, that storyteller, makes me think of this because there's a moment in Beloved where Sixo has... Mm -hmm run to meet in the, in, in the night, is a, well, walked, run, to meet the 30-mile woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at some point he gets caught coming back, right, from the 30-mile mm-hmm. woman. And they, 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 because he's 
he's a recalcitrant slave because he has not mm-hmm. obeyed, he has disobeyed the master's orders enough so that they think that he's essentially a bad bargain, that there's no way that this slave is ever going to learn, learn his, to, to keep his place. Yeah, he's so going to be independent, yeah. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can, in a sense, right, in a sense, like what they do kind of makes sense in that they realize he will never be a slave because he will never submit. Right, so he's no good to them as a slave. He's no good to them as as anything else. And so they, he, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, just thinking that he's an embodied person. He's not a slave. He's an in, in precisely. In, you know, he's an Pre- enslaved person who rejects who actually is just himself. Right. So right. go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. Just that's yeah. right. He rejects that role, so they can do nothing with him. So they decide to kill him, to burn yeah. him alive. So they tie mm-hmm. him to a stake, and as the flames are licking up, he cries out, seven zero, seven zero. Mm-hmm. It was not until years after reading Beloved that I realized, oh, he fathered a child. The child is named Seven O. Mm-hmm. So there's a moment of crying out in the moment of death. He's he's hopeful. He's he's talking about a legacy that he's left behind. Right. And um, and there's something really beautiful and poignant about that moment. Now, that is kind of, there's something kind of lawful about that to me. There's something kind of, this is what we do as human beings. We, 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 we keep our eyes on the prize of legacy and imagine mm-hmm. handing something down to, a, to generations um, that will come after us. And then there's another moment in Beloved, which again occurred to me years later, or I finally understood years later, which is truly disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason I didn't, and this is a transgression sort of part of it for me, mm-hmm. I think part of the reason I, re- I, I didn't know it is I was resisting knowing it on a, some, some subliminal level. There's a scene where the men on the chain gang are working some farm somewhere, something. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, ho- it's horror the way she describes the conditions in these men are kept in while they are working the land, right? Mm-hmm. And she says something like, the white men on horseback come through and they wake everyone up, right? They pull on their chains. Mm-hmm. And one man says to the, um, um, one of the slaves who's on his knees, he says, you want breakfast, nigger? And then... And she, she doesn't describe this explicitly, but what essentially happens, and again, it took me years to figure this out, is that the white, one of the white men, um, or she describes a situation that happens consistently and says that in that moment, the black man who's basically um, filleting this white man mm-hmm. yeah. um, might have the chance to just bite that phallus right off and, you know, be, be whipped to death or stoned to death or mm-hmm. killed in some way. But he would take that man's manhood with him or something like that. Mm-hmm. I remember not fully grokking this. And then when it came to me, I was like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. that is such a, I'm kind of speechless. It's such a difficult thing for me to wrap my head around that. But it makes sense in some ways, like that a man would do that to another man, not for pleasure, right? Not he's that's not power. asking yeah. him to suck him off for no, pleasure. That's right. It's yeah. pure 
power. It's like mm-hmm. I can demean this other embodied human being in this way to make them not an mm-hmm. embodied human being, right? To just yeah. make mm-hmm. them this like hole that I can fuck. And not have any indication, maybe maybe later, maybe some other kind of way, that they are denigrating themselves. Like right. to to really feel like what is it that you need this thing for? Right. Right? Right. You know? So so that was that was a really difficult moment when I came to that realization and I thought, oh, that's right. Like human beings do do this to each other. Mm. Yeah. I and mean, one of the one of the the great talking, you know, I opened the uh, the the podcast of the the talk of fictions and 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 stories have to always leave things out, right? They have to leave mm-hmm. details out and sometimes that's just as important and, and not sometimes. It's often more important than what's included. Mm-hmm. Um and and See, what and what was left out of the American story were black lives. Um I mean these were uh, you know, depending on your legislative perspective and where you fall in history, they weren't fully human. They were a problem. They were an economic resource. Uh, but for the mainstream culture, they were not a story, right? They were not these fully embodied characters, the 30 mile woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the great, and the, in this fiction was, used intentionally to craft the narrative of American exceptionalism in the 18th and 19th century, namely that Americans, what made America unique was its willingness to die for freedom. So it Mm -hmm. was willing, it was willing to risk life and limb to cast off British imperialism and that they therefore deserved their freedom. America and we should always understand that early story as being parentheses white men, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, America, uh, the white men deserved their freedom because they were willing to die. And the, the story that was told of slaves, the, the, well, they were slaves because they wanted to be slaves. If they really right. didn't want to be slaves, they would. They, they, they would. That's right. They'd be willing oh, yeah, to die. Yeah. Right. Of course, we now know that that is so there's an element of truth in that, right? Like if you if you want to resist your circumstance, you will not be broken. Except the, the truth is they weren't. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of slave rebellions. There were hundreds, yeah. if not mm-hmm. thousands, of moments of resistance that are being described here. There were hundreds, if I mean probably millions, over the course of of the several hundred years that the shores uh, of Africans, Africa on the boat. Uh, that's to absolutely. The shores. That's right. Every single yeah, they, moment, they there was never, some level of rebellion that's, or that's resistance. Right. That's Absolutely. right. They never lay yeah. down. They never lay down. And that that is the that is the lie that was right at the center of um, of the of American exceptionalism, and has morphed into the lie of sort of deserved privilege. Right, the sort of idea oh, of social mm-hmm. Darwinism or whatever. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off track. I just, I, I just, people like writers like Morrison um, reveal that lie in their storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they, they they reveal that gap, that aporia in, mm-hmm. in the story that that America tried to tell of itself. 
Mm. I want to go very briefly back to what you said, Seth, about, I mean, Seth and um, Travis, about the idea of leaving things out, because that's mm. where you can get in. That's mm. where the reader needs to come in. That's where he, she, or they bring in their mm. own sensibilities and their own this. Mm. Like you, Seth, I had a problem with the book when I first read it, but I was mm. in college, so we had opportunities to sit in class and talk about the book, mm. which gave me more um, space for the book. But I remember being haunted by that book. The first mm-hmm. time I read it, I was laying up in bed going, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like there was, it was so disturbing and her language so crisp. Mm-hmm. And she said in an interview years ago, if they could live it, I could definitely write about it. Mm-hmm. Because the people were asking her, how could she do it? And she was like, you know, the book started, I think, was she started the the trilogy, which became Beloved Jazz and paradise years mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. but that she she there was a story about a woman named margaret garner who the story beloved was based on a woman i want to say kentucky who had escaped with her husband and three of her children mm-hmm. to, to ohio mm-hmm. and quote unquote the slave catchers came and tried to retrieve her and she killed one of her child children mm-hmm. and was on the way to kill another Mm-hmm. And then tried right. on the way back to Kentucky, tried to drown herself and her child. Right. And so the it was a it was what they called a cause celeb because they were interested in she couldn't be tried for murder mm-hmm. because it was stolen property. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they were really kind of pushing that um, abolitionists were really pushing at this thing to have her tried as a murderer. Mm. And never worked. And she, Morrison said that, and it's included in a book that Morrison published in 1972 called The Black Book, which was basically 300 years of scrapbook of African-American experience, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so she included that story and she said it haunted her for a while. And she was like, you know, but she didn't want to get too close to it because she needed to be able to invent and Mm -hmm. to really pull out what that story was like. Mm-hmm. And so the American the American experiment largely at the root of it is freedom for me. This idea mm-hmm. of freedom for whom and why. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that whole space that she even talked about other parts, which was like, I don't write my sexy into books. I write, I leave space for your sexy to get in. Because your sexy is much more sexier than mine. And I and I remember being pulled by that when I would read other writers who were trying to constantly tell me what to think and how to feel and all that. And I was like, Mm. just lay it out. Don't tell me who the bad guys are or the good women are. I'll figure that out. I'm always going to figure that out. As a reader, you have to, as a writer, you have to trust your reader. And I think that she trusts her readers in the way that you kind of described that aha moment, staring at the ceiling going, oh, this, this here, this means this to me. I think Mm -hmm. I know what she meant now, you know? Mm And I think her books require, along with Baldwin books and a lot of other writers that I love, whose books I read over and over again, you get something different out of it when you change and how you develop. So it's a gift. It's a gift. And I also want to add on to that because I think we've done, in some ways, the typical thing of reading Toni Morrison as a particular kind of insightful interlocutor about the American story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also want to talk about Toni Morrison as a particular kind of sensual writer because mm. she's done things with language that at the time that I read her, I didn't really know were possible. And specifically, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the moment that, is it George or it's, it's, it's the man who comes to her house who she's known in her previous life, and they kind of have an affair. And there's a moment when he's 
standing at the stove with her. Oh, and she's, and he's, shirt, she's cooking. he's shirtless and the back. Right. Oh yeah, I know. I know and, and, he, and he talks yeah. and he, and he yeah, slowly yeah, yeah. unzips her dress in the back and he sees the chokeberry tree and he yeah. starts to trace mm-hmm. the yes. lines of those scars with yeah. his hands. Yeah. And he talks about her like, she ta- Marcin talks about um, her making um and i'm just forgetting these characters names right now i'm sorry but it's okay um um, making this dish and i think she's using flour and she's and and morrison describes the salt tears coming down her face and falling into Mm -hmm. whatever it is she's making and that such uh the scene is so wrenching because it is so beautiful and it is so human just this moment of someone touching someone else's scars but it's also really difficult mm-hmm. for me or was really difficult for me because the scars mean that this woman has been whipped so extravagantly mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that scar tissue has literally created a tree on her back mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. there's so much happening in that scene that is mm-hmm. just diametrically opposed is this beauty and this tenderness and this ugliness and degradation and it's it's incredibly hard to read and mm-hmm. as soon as you're done you want to fucking read it again <laughs> it was it was paul d that came to her house paul yeah, d that's yeah. right. she paul knew it sweet oh, home d. yeah yes yeah, yeah. Oh. that that sensuality and that yeah. i think she says she writes on various levels so mm-hmm. it didn't occur to me i actually looked up paul d that his last name it was garner which is Margaret Garner's ah, name, right? Ah, yeah. And I was like, oh, look at you, look at you. I just want to get this after 30 years, you know? <laughs> and so Morrison offers, I, I, what I love is at her best to me, she's doing that kind of thing that you're talking about, Seth, um, at her best. And the, um, I was thinking about what she did for me. Like I said, she just, she offered me a different way of thinking about different things. Mm-hmm. So you, you, she says, I don't write out of my biases. I write out of what I don't know, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so a friend of mine recently, after she passed, he goes, well, he hadn't read much of her work. And he goes, well, I was told that she was, she hated men. <laughs> what? Been, well, but here it is, right? So, cause I've been through this argument, I don't know, like a gillion times with people. Oh, God. And it's mainly with people who don't read her. So right. they have no point of reference. It's just that they're telling me that someone else said that someone else said a game of telephone. I don't know. So what I said was, I said, and, and so in Paradise, the first few lines are, uh, they shoot the white girl first. With the rest mm-hmm. of them, they could take their time. There's 17 mm-hmm. miles between Ruby and this town and so whatever. And I said, well, what Paradise is, because Morrison was trying to figure out why people do violence to each other. And so what she did was in Paradise, in short, there's this town called Ruby that was um, founded by these formerly enslaved people who had been turned away from towns called Fair. This is after mm-hmm. Reconstruction, I mean, after the Civil War, after Emancipation. Mm-hmm. They're walking along and then they, they established Ruby. And Ruby has no hotels. <laughs> it has nothing. You are supposed to go buy Ruby. You're not supposed to mm-hmm. stop at mm-hmm. Ruby. Mm-hmm. And so there is... Ruby is so self-contained and so bent on starting this notion of paradise that when they're outside of Ruby, there's this um, convent that Morrison describes. He goes, was just one way, one letter away from, you know, um, uh, 
what's the word convent and it's the witch's coven yeah coven, <laughs> something like yeah. that just mm-hmm. one or two letters away from such and such mm-hmm. so what it is is these women who have been pariahs in various mm-hmm. parts of that area came to live at this convent mm-hmm. um, where she goes Arapaho girls had um, been taught to forget who they were right because mm-hmm. Morrison likes to slip these little lines in where mm-hmm. you know in terms of the geos space or whatever that you're at so in short when they go to shoot the white they shoot they shoot the white girl first morrison said i deliberately didn't want race to be this thing right because she was thinking about how people do violence for whatever reason and that what was it like what was it like for an upstanding man in his community in ruby to join in on a mob of men going to shoot what they think is the reason why their town is failing And I remember reading the first hundred pages of that book when I first moved to New York City. And I think because I was going through um, culture shock, right? I was mm-hmm. just like constantly, uptown, uptown where? You know, mm-hmm. you're on a train <laughs> that mm-hmm. I didn't get it. And I reread the book later. And it's like, oh, God, this is amazing. And I, I was a big fan of jazz, the prior novel. But Beloved pushes, I mean, excuse me, Paradise pushes the pedestal of the idea of Paradise on its head as well. Paradise, who's included? Who's mm-hmm. not included? Why do you even need a paradise? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she said she was going to call the book War, but that she really kind of wanted to get at this idea. But the 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 criticism of Morrison and other Black women writers, and I'm sure white women writers or anybody who writes against what people think they should be writing about, the first thing is you hate men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, I, you could take case by case or whatever, but I've never got that Morrison wrote out of that. She says, I don't write out of a particular ideology. I'm writing mm-hmm. because I'm interested in finding out something. Either I have a line at the beginning of the book or the end of the book or some idea, and then I hope that something comes to inform it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, Paradise is so worth your time. It's a weird, um, I, I had not, I had never heard Morrison um, encapsulated that way that she hates men um, th- that was definitely not my experience of reading her um, it's a lazy I, critique it's a very yeah, lazy I'm not mean, really interested in her work kind of critique to me too yeah you had said you know why do we you know, we why do we need a paradise and it uh, tripped the the one quotation from Morrison that that I wanted to share um, that's also from her Nobel Prize lecture Um and you know, I th- we you know we we invent paradise because of death. You know, we don't we want a place where where that doesn't where that doesn't happen, and that's not you know that's not the reality of our lives. And towards the end of her uh, Nobel Prize uh, uh, speech uh, for literature, she says, "Word work is sublime because it is generative. It makes meaning that secures our difference, our human difference, the way in which we are like no other life. We die. We die." That may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. Yes, uh, you know, and she's awesome. drawing. You know, you know, Kafka is, I think, mm. who said that. You know, the the meaning of life is that it ends. And you know, so I mean, mm-hmm. Morrison is very, I think, sort of self consciously placing herself in in a kind of literary canon, uh, which she clearly belongs in, um, as does any uh, you know writer that that sort of tackles those themes and is in conversation mm-hmm. with other writers. And um, and and that the, at, at the heart of it, you know, I, this is you know. This is a topic that is uh, very generative for me, mm. which is that when you dig down and 
you look at, for me, any of the writers that have really grabbed me, um, whether they be poets, novelists, uh, intellectual uh, historians, mm-hmm. they understand that, 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 gener- that germ at the root of all these things that we do and make is, is our anxiety about death um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and its interruption and, and what it takes away from us. Um, and, and why I wanted to do the podcast to interrupt because death, death interrupts all of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, mm-hmm. as crazy as the country is right now, as as unmoored, imagine if Donald Trump just—I don't mean it in a fan in a in a fantastic way—and mm-hmm. hopefully, no one picks up on this podcast. And, oh, he's advocate. But if Donald Trump were to just drop dead today, our entire narrative, mm-hmm. what what we are organizing ourselves around politically and contesting, would shift and change. And and mm-hmm. and that is the nature of death. It's it's the great sort of ar- arbiter and leveler. Um, and in this instance, you know, it caused us to recall a, a worthwhile life. I mean, that is, you know, and, and a beautiful life and, Mm. and, um, yeah, anyway, so Mm -hmm. I'd like, I'd like to give you both the last word and, and sort of whatever you'd like to say about, um, Toni Morrison. There's so much to say. I defer to you, Steve. I defer to you, Stephen. Yeah, I've been talking this entire podcast because um, I love her way so much. And so thank mm-hmm. you for that opportunity that in the platform. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that I think that for anyone listening to Tony, um, listening to this podcast, if they're interested in Toni Morrison, um, you you would do well by reading her fiction, but read it slowly. And if you're the kind of reader who can read uh, multiple things mm-hmm. at once, I'd also recommend reading her um, reading her interviews. Is that why I get a lot of joy out of reading her fiction and having my interrupted, um, an, uninter- an uninterrupted space where I'm just imagining what she's talking about, having that mm. conversation with her in the book. Mm. I do like hearing her voice and I do like hearing her think about the craft of writing and the responsibilities writers have or artists have in general to go to work, to do the work during hard times to tell difficult stories. And so, um, and the book I'd recommend first would not be The Bluest Eye, which is her first novel. Mm-hmm. I would recommend Sula, a story mm. of a story of friendship. Mm. And and it's it's a very um succinct and beautiful work of fiction. Mm. Nice. Nice. I like that. Thank nice. you. Thank you for that. And thank you for the conversation. Steven and Seth. And I'll uh, speak to you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.